Friends, grace to you and peace from God, who is our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus, who is the Christ, our Messiah. Amen. What makes you feel alive? Think about that for a second. What in your life, experiences, moments, people, what and who in your life make you feel alive? I thought about this question this week a lot. What does it mean to feel alive? I will say getting enough sleep is a good start, so I would say that. But as I thought about what it is that makes you feel alive, I came up with these answers and see if they jive with yours. The first thing I think that makes you feel alive is being with those someones that you love. Being with those people who make life worth living, if you will. Would you agree that that makes you feel alive, being with those people? The second was doing something that you love. How many of you like to be outside and work in your garden? Who enjoys going for a hike? Who enjoys playing trivia with Tom Milburn at the Tap House? Who enjoys watching their children play or do the thing that they love to do? Yes. Yes. Doing those things that you love. Don't we live for those? Don't we plan our lives around that? Likewise, I believe that being in creation helps us to feel alive. Anyone, I I drive a lot, as you would imagine, and as I'm driving, I just continually find myself, this especially now in the fall, looking around, looking at the trees, and saying, man, we live in a beautiful part of the country. It is gorgeous. It makes you feel like, wow, especially when the sun is going down and you see that, Uh, Being in creation, whoever feels that way when you're at the beach, when you're walking down the beach and you see the ocean and you hear the waves, don't you just feel more alive? Same is true for when you're perhaps on a hike out west or when you're at night. Have you ever looked up and just seen a ton of stars because there's no light and you see all the stars? Don't you feel alive? Isn't that when you ask those deep questions about what it means to be alive and be like, wow, look at all of this. I'm here. What does that mean? It makes you feel alive. I believe that what makes you feel alive is when you have a purpose in your life. When you're doing something that matters. Whatever that happens to be. Maybe that's doing something that matters um, and it's not easy. But you feel alive, don't you? You feel like you have a purpose. I'm doing this, this is important, this is hard work, but dadgummit, this is something that needs to happen. And it makes you, makes you feel alive and thankful. Another one that I came up with, the fifth one that I came up with was this. And I've seen this way too often, and perhaps you've experienced it yourself. 
is when you have gone through a time where you didn't feel alive, where you feel like you wanted to die. You've ever been there? Maybe it's a difficult time in your personal life. Maybe it's a difficult light time in your professional life. Maybe it's the loss of someone who is so near and dear to you that you just don't know if you can go on. Those moments of just going through a difficult, trying time. But then, you kind of make it through that. And you live out the words of Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Not even though I go and pitch a tent and stay there forever. No, even though I walk through. And as you start walking through, and you come out on that other side where you thought you wanted to die back here, but now you realize that life continues I'm not sure anything makes you feel more alive than that. I have heard it from so many spouses who said, I finally feel alive again. What is it that makes you feel alive? Our lesson today from Jesus is an odd one. But I think at the heart of it is this question. Are we, as followers of Jesus, embodying life? Are we building up life? Are we encouraging life? Are we children of the resurrection? This is, as I said, an odd story. The Sadducees show up, and I once read that nobody comes to church to hear about who the Jebusites were, who the Sadducees were, and that's probably true. But I do think it's important to tell you a little bit about who they are so you get the context of this story. And the Sadducees, you see, were a a denomination, if you will, of the early church. They were associated with the temple. They led the temple. They were generally prosperous and elite. But they only um, listened to and studied and saw as... Um, as saw as sacred scripture the first five books of Moses. And to their understanding and interpretation, that meant there was no resurrection. Now other Jews, like the Pharisees and the Essenes and the scribes and all these other little denominations, they thought there was. And a lot of times the Pharisees and the Sadducees were on opposite sides. Like if there was a voting, somebody would be standing there and go, would you like the uh, ballot for the Pharisees? Or they would say, would you like the ballot for the Sadducees? That's probably what would have happened on an election day back then. But what happens uh, here is that you know, the enemy of my enemy is my enemy, right? Or, so, or the enemy of my enemy is my friend, however that goes. And so the Sadducees and Pharisees kind of come together. They want to challenge Jesus. And here the Sadducees go to Jesus, and, they, and they're challenging him on this, this, this Torah, um, uh, this thing that says in Torah in chapter 25 of Deuteronomy that if a woman dies, or if, her, if a woman dies, then the brother needs to marry her. And that kind of goes along with a story I heard one time about why the groomsmen always wear the same thing. It's like if the groom just kind of fell over and died, then the next one just steps up. I, I heard that one, so I don't know if that's true. Maybe that was the basis of, of that. But the reality is this is that there was this system in place. 
And the Sadducees, who didn't believe in the resurrection, mind you, go to Jesus and in a way to try to trick him, but also maybe get at their enemies, the Pharisees as well, say, well, let's take this to its you know, silly conclusion. If she had married seven different guys, whose would she be? Basically making a mockery of this idea of new life and resurrection. Okay? That is what is happening here. And what's interesting about that is Jesus, as he is wont to do, does not play along. He actually challenges them and says to them that instead that Moses, in fact, had talked about the resurrection because God is, in his response to them, God is the God of the living for all are alive to him. That he goes on to challenge their vision of no new life, of no resurrection. You see, for the Sadducees, all of God's covenant promises had to happen in this world, and then boom, it's over, nothing there. But Jesus says something else. Jesus says that new life, and as he foreshadows what will happen with the cross and the empty tomb, is that new life has no boundaries. That new life is, in fact, what God is all about. His response to them, that God is the God of the living, not of the dead. For all, for to him, all are alive, reminds us that no matter what is happening in our world, there is possibility of resurrection. And the question then becomes for us in our life, as the followers of Jesus, is how are we embodying life? Where you work, how are you embodying life? yourself and others? Are you embodying life through the service you do? Like those who met yesterday for returning thanks here at Bethel. Doing something that matters. Are you embodying life through the reconciliation that you may be making with a friend around you? Are you embodying life by caring for those who are in need? Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it is a friend. Perhaps it is a stranger. Are you embodying life when you bring a can for our Advent food drive. You see, the reality of what Jesus is saying here, especially in light of this silly, silly story of the woman and how many people she married, maybe what embodying life means for Jesus in this is to challenge a system where a woman has to marry the brother and she might not even want to. Or perhaps the, the brother Perhaps the brother didn't want to marry her. Did you, you know what would happen to the brother who didn't want to marry her? According to Deuteronomy 25, you should know this. This is fascinating. He would have to go to the elders, and the elders would take off his shoe, slap him, spit on him, and say, your home will forever be known as the family without a shoe. I mean, seriously. That's what it meant. Silly. Crazy. Maybe what Jesus was coming to say is that these systems that are in place that do not give life, was the woman in this story, was she had, did she have a life-giving existence? No. Did the brothers in the story have a life-giving existence? No. What Jesus was saying is we are about and God is about 
new life. And embodying new life in every way. Let me tell you a story that kind of combines a lot of what we're doing today with how new life occurs and how God is the God not of the dead, but of the living. Floyd Beaver was my grandfather. He died in March of 1945 after being shot by the Germans. He was, died a couple months after my mother, Barbara, was born. She never got to know him. She lived, her and her sister and my grandmother lived for many years, just the three of them. But Floyd and his family was a definite part of their life. My mom met my dad in high school, and they fell deeply in love. And they were together ever from that time on. And when they got, when they got married, my dad made a promise to my mom that one day he would take her to his grave. You see, my grandfather is buried at the Henri Chappelle um, military um, cemetery in Liège, Belgium. And nobody from the family had ever made it there. Well, in we went to Germany in 1995 when I was on internship, and my parents decided that that was the time to go. So my aunt, Sandra, my mom, my dad, and myself, we all went over to Germany and spent some time going through Germany, but then we took our own little family trip out to Liège, Belgium, to the Henri Chapelle Cemetery. And when we got there, it was one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. It was gorgeous. The countryside in Belgium and the crosses and the, and the Star of Davids and the beautiful grounds. It was holy, sacred space. And so when we got there, we found out where Granddaddy was, was buried. And then we walked. My mom and my aunt, you know, were kind of holding hands. My dad was behind them. And I was there too. And as we got to the grave, I watched my mom and my aunt you know, kneel down there. And hold each other and, and cry. And for the first time, hug their dad. And then my dad walked over beside his wife, who he had made this promise to. And he had, a, he had a bunch of dirt from Rowan County, North Carolina, where my granddad had grown up and lived. And he'd taken that dirt from the cemetery at their home church that was named after my grandfather. And he took that dirt from home, and he poured it and mixed it there at the foot of the cross where Granddaddy Beaver was. And I stood there with people that made life worth living. My parents and my aunt. I stood there with 
them doing something that we loved. I stood there with them while we were standing in this beautiful creation doing something that mattered and recognizing that we had come through a difficult time and were feeling alive. I can tell you without a doubt that Floyd Beaver was resurrected that day. He was resurrected in the hearts of his daughters. He was resurrected in the heart of a son-in-law. And he was resurrected in the heart of a grandson. See, that's what it means when Jesus says God is the God, not of the dead, but of the living. Because he makes resurrection happen. May we have the eyes to see it. And may we have the courage to be it. In Jesus' name, amen.